Amen. All right. Oh, good to be here. Good to be here with you. Uh, we are concluding our series on Doctrine Matters today, and uh, I hope that you've enjoyed the series. I hope it's been helpful to you. Uh, we've uh, been bringing these messages on Doctrine Matters because it hasn't mattered uh, in recent decades. At least you wouldn't think so, given how little attention that uh, the matter of doctrine has been given by the church. The church has neglected the teaching of its essential doctrines, and so the people have grown complacent about doctrine, and it has gotten uh, even a, gotten a bad name, doctrine has, as though doctrine is an oppressive thing. Rather, we think as modern Americans that we should be free to believe whatever seems good to us, right? Well, seems is another way of saying feels, and we all know being guided by our feelings is usually not the best way to discern truth. In fact, often enough, our feelings will guide us in exactly the wrong direction. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way to death. And so the church has abdicated its responsibility to teach the people of God the truth, as articulated by the ancient church. And it has left believers adrift, not really knowing what they believe beyond simple platitudes. So this series has been meant to help us regain our historic doctrines, at least some of them. So far in this series, we've talked about Trinity, about Jesus, about resurrection, about the Holy Spirit, about Scripture, free will, and sacraments. And today we're going to talk about grace. Listen again to our passage from the short letter to Titus, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all, training us to renounce impiety and worldly passions, and in the present age to live lives that are self-controlled, upright, and godly, while we wait for the blessed hope and the manifestation of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He it is who gave himself for us, that, we might, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify for himself a people of his own who are zealous for good deeds." Now, the word grace is defined as unmerited favor. In other words, we don't earn it, and we don't deserve it. But it is given to us nevertheless, this favor of God, this kindness, this love from God. The Greek word is charis. It means grace. And it's also the same root uh, of the word charisma, which means gift, and charismatic, which refers to the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and eucharistos, which means grateful or thankful, which is appropriate for today on Thanksgiving Sunday, don't you think? And from which we get the word eucharist, referring to the Holy Communion. So grace is God's unmerited favor to us, the expression of his love for us, even though we don't deserve it. Romans 5, 8 says, but God, but God proves his love for us in that while we still were sinners, Christ died for us. That's grace. That's grace. Totally unmerited favor. Now, grace is a major theme in our Wesleyan heritage. John Wesley preached about grace a lot, and it came from his own experience of having God forgive him of his sins. In Wesley's famous journal entry about his Aldersgate heartwarming experience, he wrote, 
While he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Wesley saw the grace of God at work in his own life, and so grace became a major theme of his preaching. But it certainly wasn't unique to Wesley, because grace is a major theme throughout the whole Bible. But Wesley preached grace, perhaps, more so than most other preachers of his day. We've talked before about the three levels of grace, or three uh, three different distinctions of grace, almost a Trinitarian uh, thought of grace. Uh, Wesley talks about prevenient grace. In the message on on the doctrine of free will I preached a couple of weeks ago, I spoke of Wesley's emphasis of prevenient or preceding grace. It's the grace of God that precedes any acts or change in our lives. It precedes any awakening of faith in ourselves. And it enables us to choose God's will and to turn away or repent from our sins and turn toward God. Prevenient grace is that grace of God that comes before salvation, even before any sense of faith in our lives. It unlocks the door, if you will, that we could not otherwise go through on our own. Prevenient grace is given to everyone. It remains up to us to make the step toward God that he has enabled us to take by prevenient grace. The second grace that Wesley talked a lot about is justifying grace. This is the grace of God that bestows salvation on us. We don't earn this either. We can't do enough good works to be awarded justifying grace. All of the work has been done by God in Jesus Christ. We simply receive justifying grace when we truly affirm the lordship of Jesus Christ for ourselves and receive him as our savior. We need a savior. We can't save ourselves. And God promises and provides that Savior to us and for any who would receive him. Our official doctrine puts it this way. We believe we are never accounted righteous before God through the works or through our works or merit, but that penitent sinners are justified or accounted righteous before God only by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We believe regeneration is the renewal of man in righteousness through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, whereby we are made partakers of the divine nature and experience newness of life. By this new birth, the believer becomes reconciled to God and is enabled to serve him with the will and the affections. We believe, although we have experienced regeneration, it is possible to depart from grace and to fall into sin, and we may even then, by the grace of God, be renewed in righteousness." Now, this last part is a little controversial. As Wesleyans, we believe that it is possible to lose our salvation, that we can, as it were, put our hands to the plow and then, and then look back, that alluding to Luke 9, verse 62. It's part of our believing in free will. We can freely change our mind and decide to stop following Jesus. And at that point, the grace of God is withdrawn from our lives. Now, Calvinists do not believe that we can lose our salvation, but then they don't believe that we have free will either, so that's, that's that. But if our will is truly free, we are free once we receive Christ as Lord and Savior to then disavow our faith and thus lose our salvation. 
And I'm sure that few things grieve the heart of God more than that. Our Christian faith does not stop at justifying grace. Sometimes uh, we act as though it does, don't we? That once we say the prayer and walk down the aisle, then we've reached the goal. But Wesley would insist that the Christian faith is about more than salvation. He would insist, and we believe, that the Christian faith is about salvation and sanctification. And that's the third level of grace that I want to talk about today, sanctifying grace. This third grace, it's what life is all about, becoming more like Jesus, becoming righteous with his righteousness, becoming holy is what sanctification means. And holy means being different, set apart, out of the ordinary, not normal. Sanctification is becoming peculiar. And taking a look at what is normal in our world today, I think I want to be peculiar, if you know what I mean. Sanctifying grace is God's power, God's gift, working in us to make us holy, to make us righteous, so that we become what God already sees in us. He sees Jesus in us. Sanctifying grace moves us toward the goal in steps that are unique to each one of us, ridding our lives of sin and cleansing us from the imperfections that plague the followers of Jesus. What the writer of the book of Hebrews is talking about in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where it says, Therefore let us also lay aside the sin that clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. And Wesley believed that we can be made perfect in this life. He believed, and we also believe, that God can entirely sanctify us. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says this, May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This idea of entire sanctification is unique to Wesley, at least in emphasis. And as Wesleyans, we, are not, we not only believe in sanctification, we also believe that, in theory, we can be made entirely sanctified in this life, as Paul suggests in that First Thessalonians passage. And as our official doctrine puts it, we believe sanctification is the work of God's grace through the Word and the Spirit, by which those who have been born again are cleansed from sin in their thoughts, words, and acts, and are enabled to live in accordance with God's will, and to strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Entire sanctification is a state of perfect love, righteousness, and true holiness, which every regenerate believer may obtain by being delivered from the power of sin, by loving God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength, and by loving one's neighbor as oneself. Through faith in Jesus Christ, this gracious gift may be received in this life both gradually and instantaneously, and should be sought earnestly by every child of God. We believe this experience does not deliver us from the infirmities, ignorance, and mistakes common to man, nor from the possibilities of further sin. The Christian must continually be on guard against spiritual pride and seek to gain victory over every temptation to sin. He must respond wholly to the will of God, 
so that sin will lose its power over him, and the world, the flesh, and the devil are put under his feet. Thus he rules over these enemies with watchfulness through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Christian's responsibility in all of this is to cooperate with the Spirit in his work to make us holy, to sanctify us. It means we need to practice spiritual disciplines like prayer, reading scriptures, being in ministry, being uh, accountable to others, to train our souls and spirits to yield to the Lord and to make ourselves available to God's Spirit and participate in the sanctification process. You can see all three of these graces in our Titus passage, Titus 2, 11 through 14. Verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all. That's prevenient grace. It's available to all. Not that all are saved, but that all may be saved. Verse 12, Training us to renounce impiety and worldly passions, and in the present age to live lives that are self-controlled, upright, and godly. That's sanctifying grace. Verse 13, while we wait for the blessed hope and the manifestation of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, he it is who gave himself for us that, we might, that he might redeem us from all iniquity. That's justifying grace. And purify for himself a people of his own who are zealous for good deeds. Again, that's sanctifying grace. A few years ago, I preached a series of messages on Wesleyan spirituality in which I introduced or uh, uh, reminded you of the imagery of the house of religion that Wesley used in, in order to kind of uh, uh, illustrate what he was talking about in the uh, development of faith. In Wesley's Principles of a Methodist Further Explained, he made the following bold declaration. He said, Our main doctrines, which include all the rest, are three that of repentance, of faith, and of holiness. The first of these we account, as it were, the porch of religion, the next, the door, and the third, religion itself. So this house of religion image relates to Methodist doctrine and to grace. Wesley outlines the stages of faith development this way. He says the first stage is the porch, which is repentance, which relates to prevenient grace. Everyone has access to the porch because of prevenient grace. Prevenient grace is like the stairs that lead up to the porch that would be inaccessible without them. But we still have to walk up the stairs in order to reach the porch, which Wesley likened to repentance. And then he said there is the door, which is salvation, which relates to justifying grace. Beyond that porch is the door. To walk through the door one must trust in the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross. This is justifying grace. One cannot be saved unless justifying grace is applied to one's life. It is the grace of God for salvation. And then the whole house, which is the faith, the life of a Christian. This is sanctifying grace. The house itself, the Christian life itself, is the process of sanctification. Sanctifying grace applies as one works in concert with the Bible and the Holy Spirit to perfect one's life in the love of God and neighbor. This isn't salvation, it's sanctification, the becoming holy as God is holy. As it says in 1 Peter 1.16, For it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And as it says in Matthew 5.48, 
Be perfect, therefore, as your, as your heavenly Father is perfect. For Wesley, being holy and being perfect are the same thing. The Wesleyan doctrine of Christian perfection, uh, which is the same as entire sanctification, is essentially being perfected in love of God and neighbor. It is sanctification, becoming holy. So these three graces, prevenient grace, justifying grace, sanctifying grace, work in concert with the Spirit as he moves us toward uh, acceptance of Jesus as our Lord and Savior and of, of becoming more and more like him in this life. It's appropriate that we're talking about grace today as I mentioned, charis, the Greek word translated grace, also means gratitude or thanksgiving. And today I'm thankful for God's grace because without it, I would be toast. I don't know about you. So here on this Thanksgiving Sunday, let us be especially thankful for the grace of God that though we do not deserve it and we cannot earn it, God is gracious and loving to give us his unmerited favor in Jesus Christ. Next week, we begin the season of Advent, where we remember the first Advent, or coming, of Jesus, and we anticipate his second Advent, or second coming, when he will return to bring justice and the kingdom of God in all of its fullness. We'll be doing a series uh, during Advent that will coincide with the daily devotions from Seedbed called The Christian New Year. You can purchase an Advent devotional book at seedbed.com, or you can subscribe to the daily emails or just tune in on Facebook Live as I share the devotional each day at 9 o'clock Pacific time. And then on Monday evenings, we'll have a discussion, watch a short video, and otherwise process the readings from the week on Zoom. That starts on Monday, November 30th at 7 p.m. The readings start on Tuesday, December 1st, and the sermon series begins next Sunday, November 29th. The first sermon will be a new year of awakening based on Romans 13, verses 11 and 12. The next Sunday, the sermon will be a new year of anticipation based on Revelation 21, 1 through 4. On the third Sunday of Advent, it'll be a new year of priority based on Matthew 1, 18 through 25. And then finally, on the fourth Sunday of Advent, it'll be a new year of faith based on Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. You can call the church office for more information or just read about it on our website. But join us during this uh, journey through Advent, the Christian New Year, I invite you. I'll spend a few moments in quiet, prayerful reflection as we consider what God may be saying to us today.